Thanks, Beth. <clears throat> All right. Let's pray. Are you guys comfortable? You feeling good? Are you cooling down a little bit? Yes. A, a little bit. Okay, but I'm going to tell you something. It was toasty in here about an hour ago. So uh, the Holy Spirit's moving <laughs> through CFAC air conditioning and heating. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray. God, we, uh, we're grateful that we can gather. Um, pray that all of our friends who pulled into the parking lot and saw the AC truck and just went back home, we pray that, I guess they can join us online, but maybe they'd have a little more faith next week. <laughs> we pray that, um, we're just grateful that you give us a place, whether it's a little warm or not, but it's a place that we can gather. And just hear these stories, reflect on what it means. Um, not just for after we die, but for right now. And God, I pray that what we talk about today would help us to really wrestle with that, that our faith is not simply something we set aside until we're dead, that it's alive and real and it matters right now. So as always, we pray that you'd open our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we could receive everything that you have for us. We pray that our hands and our feet would be used by you to do your work, that our mouths, that we'd be willing to open them so that we can proclaim how good you are and how much you love the world by what we do and what we say. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. All right, so uh, when Beth teaches the kids, you guys are paying attention, right? Because you know the stories are also for you. In case you didn't know that, spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, So she always asks the question, what's the question? I wonder. I love that question. Um, sometimes when we ask I wonder questions, like there's, there's not really an answer. We're just kind of left to wonder. We don't really know uh, what to do with it. And we have to be careful with those because sometimes we can create ideas and teachings to fill in the gaps. And sometimes we just need to say I wonder and move on, right? Uh, but sometimes we have I wonder questions and they're, like, there are answers. They might be different than the answers we're expecting and they might come to us in a different form than what we're looking for. But there are some answers to these I wonder questions. So uh, today, um, I wonder, I wonder if you ever wonder about the resurrection. We celebrate it on Easter, but do you really think about it? Like what exactly happened? And then what's going to happen to us? Uh, Maybe some of us have been influenced by Plato, these ancient philosophers, they taught that our bodies are just like these shells and they house a spirit or a soul. And they believe that actually these shells were really broken and evil. The only thing good was that soul. So after we die, that spirit or that soul, that it leaves these bodies and it lives forever in some ethereal plane of existence that we call heaven. That might sound familiar to you. Maybe some of you grew up or even think that now. And you wouldn't be alone. Many people in our culture think this way. That's not biblical. That way of thinking is actually completely foreign to the biblical worldview. Because scripture is bracketed beginning and end in creation and new creation. Like according to scripture, our spirit or our soul or whatever you want to call it, it is not all that survives. Like we are not just formless beings that are waiting to die so that we can escape these mortal shells. That's not what's going on. Orthodox Christianity for 2,000 years has always proclaimed that Jesus had a resurrection body. He had a resurrected body. 
And it goes on to tell us that just like Jesus, we will have resurrection bodies. There is a physical nature to the resurrection. Heaven itself is described as a new creation. Like as difficult as it is for us to imagine, it is somehow a physical reality. The problem is that brings to mind a whole bunch of other questions, right? Like, is it just this same body that's brought back to life? Am I resuscitated or am I resurrected? And listen, there's a difference. Like in the gospels, you know, Jesus' friend Lazarus died and Jesus goes and Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb. That wasn't a resurrection. That was a resuscitation. Lazarus comes walking out, still wrapped in his burial clothes, going like, what in the world is going on, <laughs> right? But, but Lazarus still got sick. Lazarus died. That's a sign of what's to come. The first resurrection is found in the person of Jesus. But what kind of body is raised? Is it this same body? And, and if it is, uh, how old am I gonna be in heaven? Like, do I get to keep these tattoos? <laughs> like, Tyler did a lot of work. <laughs> there was a second century rabbi, he was asked this question. He said, uh, they asked him, they said, when the dead rise, will they rise naked or in their clothes? It's <laughs> a really practical and important question, right? Um, and depending on the answer, heaven just got a lot more interesting for some of you. <laughs> so do you ever wonder what the resurrected life will be like? And if we're honest, I wonder, do you wonder, like, did it really happen? It's a pretty remarkable thing. Did Jesus really, truly, historically walk out of the tomb? And listen, you wouldn't be alone if you've wondered that. You wouldn't be alone if you've doubted. The disciples themselves doubted. They asked that same question. So in all this wondering and all these questions, we turn to scripture and we just see what scripture has to say about all of it. And Beth just shared for the past few weeks, she's been telling these stories of the resurrected Christ as he appears to his disciples. And she's been pointing out some really interesting things, just like today. I mean, the doors are locked, the windows are closed, and he's just there. Yet he's making it very clear. There's flesh and blood, there's bone. The marks of what happened to me here are somehow still with me. He's making it clear that the resurrected Christ has a body. And he has a body, but something is clearly different because as she has told us over the past couple of weeks, his own disciples don't always recognize him. Those two that walked with him all day long on the road to Emmaus, it says that as they were walking, he told them everything that Moses, the law, and the prophets had to say. You guys know what that is? It's basically the Old Testament. <laughs> so it was a long walk. And they have no idea who he is until he breaks bread. And they realize they've been with their Savior the whole time. In John's gospel, we find that some of the disciples, uh, after everything has happened, they go back to their old way of life. They go back to work. Uh, they're fishing in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And on this day, they're having no luck. These fishermen are catching no fish. And John's gospel says this. It says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Like these stories have something in common. 
The resurrected Jesus is unrecognizable by those who were closest to him until he does something familiar with them. Like sitting at a table and breaking bread or performing a miracle at sea. That's when Jesus is recognized. In this fishing story, it's actually, okay. I think it's funny. (laughs) It says that they can barely haul the net in because it's so full of fish, right? And then it, it points out that when they finally get it to shore, Peter had already run to shore and guess what Jesus is doing? He's cooking fish and bread. <laughs> he already had his own fish. <laughs> like they just did all that work and he invites them to breakfast. But what does that tell us? The resurrected Christ worked. <laughs> he fished. He ate. The resurrected Christ has a body. But look, I know it's really confusing. So it's right that we wonder about the resurrection. But we need to start wondering about the right things. Oftentimes we wonder about what it means for us when this life comes to an end. And that's good because there's hope in that, right? There's hope in knowing that all the chaos in this world someday is gonna come to an end, um, that there will be wholeness, we will be made whole. But we can't answer all those questions. We couldn't understand them. So I wonder, do you wonder if the resurrection has anything to do with this life right now. It was like 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus had happened. And in this uh, city called Corinth, there were churches that were filled with Christians that were asking all these same questions. And over 20 years, they had come to some really weird understanding. Some people doubted the resurrection, Uh, They even mocked the idea of a physical resurrection. Y'all, this is in churches only 20 years after it happened. There were others in the churches that believed in the resurrection of the body, but they just couldn't wrap their minds around how it worked. And what we find is that a lot of those people were actually poor. And the reason is they didn't own land and they didn't have tombs. They had nowhere to bury their bodies. So guess what happened to most of the bodies of the poor? They were cremated. Well, how's that going to work? How are my loved ones going to have resurrected bodies when they are quite literally scattered over the earth? Y'all, it's 2,000 years later, and I hear this question all the time. So we have a lot in common with the church that Paul pastored in this city called Corinth. We share a lot of the same questions. We make a lot of the same assumptions. And we have many of the same misunderstandings. So Paul wrote letters to these churches. We actually have two of them in scripture. And I just wanna show you how Paul answers and deals with some of these questions and doubts about the resurrection. And I am convinced that if we do this, we're gonna see that this isn't just about what's coming. It's not something we can't understand about the future. This has a lot to do with right now. So I'm gonna read to you from 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm gonna skip around just a little bit. We'll start in verse three. Uh, Paul says to his church, he says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So he's starting to answer these questions by just giving them a reminder of the simple gospel message. 
And then he reminds them that there are a ton of live witnesses to the event itself. Many of them are still alive. Many of them are later gonna die martyrs' deaths, going to their grave, because they are convinced that they met and encountered the resurrected Christ. He says, if you have doubts, if you have questions about the resurrected Christ, there's plenty of us that have seen him. Like, just ask us. Listen to our stories. He goes on to say this in verse 12. Uh, but tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And then he says this in verse 16. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Whew. Like he's saying, this really matters. This isn't just theological concepts. This isn't just something to sit around and talk about. What you believe about the resurrection really matters. Because if Christ has not been raised to life, if the resurrection is not a real historical event, then we have nothing. Like, we're to be pitied. Jesus was just another tragic victim of a Roman cross and nothing more. Without the empty tomb, the cross has no meaning. You'll see why it's important to take people's words in context. Like if you just took that last little thing I said and pulled it out, that'd be really scary. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just another tragic victim of a Roman cross and we have nothing. But Paul goes on to say this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's why you keep reading. <laughs> He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. I'm looking around because I hope I just saw some light bulbs going off. Do you see what Paul just did? What do I always tell you? If you're struggling to understand something in scripture, even if you're struggling to understand the resurrection of Jesus, where do you go? Say it. Genesis. Thank you. You go back to the beginning. You go to the garden. You go to Genesis. And now Paul is going to continue to do this. He's going to use the language and the imagery of creation as he begins to answer specific questions about the nature of the resurrection. How does it work? Verse 36. Here's what he says. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable what? Say it. It is raised an imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You guys are almost Pentecostal. You're talking in church so much. This is good. <laughs> but think about, I mean, think about how brilliant the metaphor is. So just, I mean, imagine an acorn, right? Like, what is an acorn? It's a seed. It's also 
a future oak tree (laughs) or at least a potential oak tree. Now, if I just hold that acorn in my hand, how long is it gonna take for it to become an oak tree? Like never, right? If I just put it on my desk in my office, is it gonna become an oak tree? Of course not. What has to happen? You notice this, it has to be buried. It has to be buried in the ground. And when it's buried in the ground, Travis, so Travis reminded me, I was like, sometimes, you know, the acorns will fall and like animals will stomp on it and that's what buries things down into the ground. Travis also reminded me, he's like, from a youth director, right? He goes, you know, one of the most effective ways that seeds are spread and planted is when they're eaten and then passed. (laughs) That's true. That's true. That would come from youth ministry, but that is true. But it's in the ground, right? And then it's covered and the waters begin to fall and then that water is soaked up by the soil, the water and the nutrients in the soil. Somehow, like somehow, it activates the DNA inside that little seed. And the shell of that seed starts to soften until it breaks. That's what Paul means when he says it dies. It breaks, it's destroyed. But when that happens, little fingers begin to grow down into the ground, right, to take root. And then new growth comes up out of the soil. It's searching for light so that it can continue to transform into what it was created to be. When those first little stalks of green come up out of the soil, does it look like an oak tree yet? It's got some work to do, some transformation still to take place. See, from that cracked and broken acorn comes something radically different, unrecognizable. That seed is now unrecognizable because it has become something new. It is a new creation. And it's a new creation so that now it can be part of an ecosystem. Like it has a part to play, it has work to do. And it's work that only an oak tree can do. It's stuff that an acorn can't. Only an oak tree can host the birds. Only the tree can pump oxygen back into the atmosphere. Only the tree can begin creating more acorns that will fall to the ground, some of them buried and broken themselves. Like, do you see that seed, the acorn is not an oak tree. And the oak tree is not an acorn. But they are still the same thing. It's the same DNA. The tree is not a complete replacement of the acorn. It's the result of the acorn being transformed into something new. But that only happens when it buried, when it dies. That's when new creation is brought to life. So do you wonder what the resurrection will be like? Honestly, the best that I can do is tell you stories of the resurrected Christ and then share with you Paul's metaphors about seas and trees. Like there's honestly not much else that that we can say about it. Outside of these stories of Jesus and seeds, I don't think we can fully understand the resurrection until it happens. I can no more understand the resurrection than an acorn can understand what it means to become an oak tree. But like an acorn becoming an oak tree, he was the same Jesus, even though there was something clearly different about him. He was unrecognizable, even though he's also recognized. Right? He didn't enter in through the locked door. He just appears in the room, yet he has the physical scars of his crucifixion. He takes long walks. He eats dinner. He fishes. 
Like, I don't know how to explain it other, other than this. The crucified Christ was broken, dead and buried. And then he was raised. Something new. The same but different. And we refer to it as his glorified body, brought to life by the power of God's spirit. And that is what Paul says is in store for us. Just as we die as Adam, we are raised to life as Christ. You see, I had you say body over and over when we read that passage because you could easily just see natural and spiritual and you could begin to think like Plato, right? We're ghosts that escape this natural form. But scripture is clear. It always continues to use the word body. And when Paul talks about a spiritual body, he does not mean a disembodied soul. He means the opposite. He means an embodied expression of God's own spirit. God's spirit now embodied. The glorified body is a spiritual or a spiritful body. One that can no longer be corrupted. One that will no longer die. There's a lot to wonder about the resurrection, about life after this life. But here's the deal. In all of this, like one thing is really clear and this is the most practical and important thing. It'll not only encourage us today in a worship service, but it, to me, this is what inspires us to live a new life when we wake up each and every day. And this is honestly, like after everything, this is kind of like a mic drop moment. This is a big deal, okay? The resurrected body is the embodiment of God's own spirit, okay? That God-given spirit that will one day raise and bring to life those resurrected, incorruptible, imperishable bodies, where is it right now? It's in you already. It is already alive in us. For those who are in Christ, it is transforming us even now. It's not just the breath in our lungs, it's the power that is making us more like Christ until we are glorified and united with him forever. Last week, Sabrina told you about the word justified, right? The theological term justified, I am saved just as if I never sinned, right? Then in the end, we get these glorified bodies that we're talking about that we don't fully understand just like Jesus. But in the middle, there's this word sanctified. We are being made new. A transformation that starts with our new birth in Christ and only ends when we meet Jesus face to face. We'll talk more about that next week. But that power is already in us and it's the power to have faith, to trust, to obey. Y'all, it is the power to overpower our sin. Like even now. It's the power that eventually will defeat death itself. So look, let's get really practical before we're done. Just a couple things. Um, this is why this matters tomorrow. Like when you go to school, when you go to work, to the golf course, wherever you go. Back to the garden. In the garden, we were created for four relationships. I preached on this back in January. You can go back online and listen. We were made for a relationship with God. We were made for a relationship with ourselves. We were made for a relationship with others. And we were made for a relationship with creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. That's how everything is supposed to be. In Genesis 3, we know those relationships were broken. Well, God's spirit is in us right now. That means that even as we wait our resurrection, God's life-giving spirit is in us and is beginning to heal those broken relationships. Even now. 
we don't have to live separated from God. We know that we are being restored through the work of Jesus. We don't have to despise ourselves because of the way we look or because of our failures. We don't have to compare ourselves to everybody else who we think is so much better. We can begin to realize that we are being restored, that we are children of God, that we are image bearers of God himself. And when we realize that we are beautiful and that we are loved, not because of anything we have done and not just because of how we look, we are beautiful and we are loved because God has chosen to love us. When we really realize that our relationship with ourself can be restored. Our personal relationships, y'all, they can be healed as messy as they are. Like the relationships in your lives that are broken, they are no more broken than the two people who are in the relationship, right? So if you can be healed, they can be healed, so can that relationship. If my relationship with God can be healed, imagine the divine, the divide between a holy God and sinful Chad. If that relationship can be healed, then my relationship with my father can be too, There's a relationship with creation. Have you, have, you ever, have you ever had your breath taken away by a beautiful sunset? Like, have you ever found peace sitting near a stream or have you ever been overwhelmed by the power of the waves? Have you ever been comforted by the affection of an animal? Have you ever lost time working the land, like gardening, right? Like ordering, organizing, watching as you work in the soil and then out of it comes something beautiful? Like, we weren't made to abuse and use and disregard creation. We were made to care for it, to manage it, to utilize it for our good and for the good of our communities. Because of the power of God's life-giving spirit, y'all, all of these relationships can be restored. Like, why do you think a meal is often so central to stories in scripture? Like, what do you think is happening when you're experiencing a really good meal with people you love? Why is it so satisfying? How come some of them just last for hours and you don't even realize how long you've been there? Some of them are miserable and you realize after 20 minutes, it's time to go home. <laughs> but, but in the right setting, <laughs> I hope you've all experienced that. Because they can be an expression of all four of those relationships working again the way they're supposed to. The communion meal is the greatest example of all of them. Our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with creation, with the elements we eat. It's enacted and enjoyed when we get together around a table. But that good news doesn't end in the garden. You move forward to the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to teach us what resurrection life looks like. He teaches us a kingdom ethic that matters every day, everywhere we go, at home, at work, in our neighborhoods. Like, he tells us that what it means to live into our future resurrection, even now, and he does it by reminding us that we are salt and light, not we will be salt and light, we are salt and light. He's saying resurrection people, even before that final day, you're different. You're different than the world around you, and you're different so that the world around you will come to know how much God loves them. Like he goes on to say, a spirit-full life is not caught up in anger, but it loves its enemies. 
It doesn't worry about tomorrow. It turns to the Father in prayer and focuses on the worries of today. A spirit full life is faithful. It keeps the promises it makes to others. It cares for those who are in need. It puts material things in their proper place so that they don't become idols. It doesn't judge others without first considering its own issues. Later on in the New Testament, Paul's gonna describe these spirit full bodies. He's gonna go back to creation metaphor and he's gonna say that they produce fruit. What is the fruit? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He'll go on in another letter, actually just two chapters before 1 Corinthians 15, what I read to you today. He reminds us in that chapter that God is love, that love is the only thing that lasts on both sides of eternity without changing. Like, think about that. It is the only thing that you find on both sides of the grave that never changes. That's why scripture says God is love. He doesn't change, we do. And he describes love, he defines it the way God defines it. He says that it's patient and it's kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag, it's not arrogant. It does not act disgracefully. It doesn't seek its own benefit. It's not provoked. It doesn't keep an account of the wrongs it's suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Y'all, in all of this, he's describing heaven. Like, we can't fully understand heaven as it will be. But he's describing it in a way that we can actually experience right now. Like, when we are changed, when we are made new by finding grace through faith in Jesus, then our lives become more and more defined by those four relationships, by the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. They begin to produce this fruit. They are an expression of that definition of love. It's revealed in the way we treat others. And y'all, when this happens to us, we often become nearly unrecognizable to those who knew us before. We are the same person, but somehow we are very different. I am not who I once was. I'm an acorn, broken, cracked, dying to self so that I can become something new. And I just have to point out something really funny. When I, I just said, I am not the person that I once was. My sweet wife, who's known me since she was 14. <laughs> I was waiting for a hallelujah. <laughs> I'm an acorn that's been broken and cracked, dying to self so I can become something new and hopefully now helping other acorns be buried and broken so they can find new life too. Nearly unrecognizable to those who knew us before and that's good news because it gives us a story to tell. And I can tell them I'm different now not because I followed self-help, right? I'm different now not because I've chosen to live my best life today. I'm different now not because you only live once, right? Y'all, those are the heresies of our time. I am different now, not because of anything I have done. I am different because the life-giving spirit of God is in me. It's all him. It's a story we get to tell. 
So if you wanna know what the resurrection is like, what resurrection life is like, you wanna know what heaven is like, what life with God forever is like. Y'all, I'm convinced that we can know something about it even now. From creation, from the Sermon on the Mount, the fruit of the Spirit, and God's definition of love. The Bible, I'm convinced, is showing us the way. And it's inviting us into that kind of life. Like, think about it. Like, doesn't that sound amazing? Like, think a life of restored relationships. A life where I'm not so easily angered, where I can find peace. A life filled with the love described in 1 Corinthians 13. Doesn't that sound incredible? How much more than will it be in heaven forever? when that's the ethic that everybody lives by. We have so much to look forward to and we can even start to taste it now. That's the incredible thing, that that spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, that power that will one day raise us incorruptible, imperishable, it's in us now. And we can begin to do this now. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the future hope that we have, grateful to know that um, this isn't just gonna keep going on forever and ever, um, that all the chaos and nonsense that we see and experience every day, that one day your justice will come and it will be brought to completion, that you will make all things new, there will be no more crying or mourning or pain. And we look forward with great hope and anticipation to that day. But in the meantime, we got a lot of days to live here and now. So I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength and the vision to see that what you're calling to is not a life just waiting to die, but an incredible, beautiful, spirit-full life to be lived even now, only made that much more glorious when we see you face to face. Give us the power and the strength to remind us that we already have, because of you, the power and the strength to do it. Help us to see evidence, proof that it's working as people around us recognize that they don't recognize us anymore, that there's something different and maybe it's something they want. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen.